Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ingrid Cochran. I'm your host for this evening. And I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew Portell. Say hi to our audience, Matthew. Hello, everybody. We are having a um, an interesting conversation today, and it is something is definitely in my wheelhouse. So I'm excited to have the conversation. But just as we talked last week about um, how it's possible for trauma to pass through generations and how we were going to kind of delve into this topic today, um, I think that this is one of the most important topics um, kind of in our generation. This is kind of new science. And um, and so we wanted to take some time to talk about intergenerational transmission of trauma and um, kind of, you know, talk about kind of the myths that are associated with it. We kind of already talk about intergenerational transmission of trauma when we say, uh, you know, terms like generational curses. And so we want to kind of jump into it and see, you know, what it, the science is really saying and then talk a little bit about our own experiences. So uh, just to give some background, uh, I found out about uh, this phenomenon when I was in grad school um, and um, I was doing a lot of work trying to kind of uh, pick apart African-American parenting after I had gone through um, several years of working with um, delinquent youth in in the Department of Children's Services at Tennessee. And one of the, you know, the first things that I came across in my research was the understanding that trauma can be passed along through generations. And that um, it was, and that was kind of, um, well, it was exciting for me from an academic standpoint. But as an individual, it was extremely impactful for me to get to the point where I had a good understanding that the experiences of my ancestors and my grandmother and my mother and my father impacted me in several ways and that their traumatic experiences um, made it more likely for me to experience trauma in my lifetime, that it had an impact on my health and things of that nature. And so I want to give a little bit of an overview of what is intergenerational transmission of trauma. Uh, and uh, it is really the process by which um, trauma experienced by an individual can then impact their family, especially their children. Um, and this process starts with um, kind of a traumatic experience in an individual's life that traumatic experience can be um, anything. Like right now we are in a, a collective trauma. So we are at a time when we may experience, you know, mass intergenerational transmission of trauma. Um, and what we would call that is, is historical trauma. That's what the term historical trauma really means. But it, but intergenerational transmission can happen, you know, obviously on mass or it can happen within families. And so we're kind of, focused on families today. And so when I was researching African-American parenting practices after determining that so many children in the um, juvenile justice system in Tennessee 
were African-American. It was just disproportionate. I think at the time it was around 75 to 80%. And I was extremely interested in why there was such a disparity. Uh, and I was also still, you know, very much uh, um, embedded within a racist system. So my ideology was definitely impacted by white supremacy. So my first um, stop in, in my journey was, oh, I need to study African-American parenting because it must be flawed. And so in my um, work of studying African-American parenting, I came across the, the understanding of historical trauma and intergenerational transmission. And I decided to study it more. I went to grad school and ultimately I had my first presentation on this topic um, for the uh, Convention on Children's Justice in 2016. And what I was able to find in my studies, and this is something that, you know, I found in, in my own work, and it may not be um, what others believe, but I found that in, in my studies and in my work, that intergenerational transmission of trauma happened largely through parenting, but really there's four um, factors or mechanisms that we want to consider. So first is survival-based parenting, um, which means that parents go through some traumatic experience and it impacts the parenting practices and techniques that they employ. So they're more survival-based. They're uh, attempting to shield their children from traumatic experiences. Um, another factor is an, an maladaptive coping strategies. So the different strategies that people employ to deal with um, the trauma that they've experienced, especially if it's unresolved or they're not receiving any type of intervention or counseling to help them with establishing uh, appropriate coping strategies. And so maladaptive coping, people tend to kind of go straight to drugs and alcohol, but there's many maladaptive coping strategies that people employ, especially in relationships. They may isolate themselves. They may um, be aggressive. They may, um, there's, there's many maladaptive coping strategies beyond just um, drugs and alcohol. But if we think about isolation, for example, as one that may be employed in families and the lack of connection between families or a lack of attachment. Um, and so that, that maladaptive um, coping can really have an impact on whether or not trauma is um, transmitted through generations in the parent-child relationship or caregiver-child relationship. And then there's social learning. Uh, and so social learning is essentially, you know, the understanding that we learn from the from people around us, that we don't exactly have to share an experience, but if we witness, then we can learn um, from the experience of others. And so what the research um, shows in social learning is that, um, let's say a child, um, you know, a child will model their behavior after the adults in their space. And they will model even more closely after the adults in their space if those adults align with their gender identity or their racial identity. Uh, and so that essentially means that African-American boys are more likely to model their behavior after African-American men in their space. And, and so if that is occurring and there is trauma within the adults that are in the space of a child, then they will model their behaviors to include um, the outward expression of mental health disorders, any type of externalized behavior that they are able to, to recognize, then they will model that behavior. And so this is another avenue of intergenerational transmission. And then lastly, there's genetics. Um, 
The research has been pretty compelling in that our DNA is impacted by uh, environmental factors like stress and trauma. Uh, And so as people experience traumatic uh, experiences, especially those that um, equate to toxic stress or create what we call allostatic load, then there's a wear and tear on their um, genetic material. Uh, And that um, damage to their genetic material can then be passed along through generations. Uh, And so if they're in child rearing years, uh, um, if they're women in child rearing years, or, you know, men are always in child rearing years. So um, what we've learned is that our DNA um, can um, be damaged by stress and trauma, and that damage can be passed along to our children. And it equates to shortening of lifespan, a higher incidence of chronic chronic diseases like diabetes, um, high blood pressure, heart disease, uh, and also cognitive impairment and mental health issues. And so those four factors are really kind of how trauma is transmitted through generations. Um, To me, this was extremely impactful um, when I first um, heard this um, information. And so I want to like pause and also check in with you, Matthew, because I know um, we both come to this work from a different, from different spaces. I know you're coming from education. Um, do you, can you pinpoint kind of the first time you heard about intergenerational transmission and was it impactful for you? Yeah, I, I think I, I, I definitely remember learning about it for sure. Um, and I think when I heard about it, there were some there were some phrases that have been thrown around as long as I can remember that connected to it. For example, that apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? Like some of these things that we've heard, the, the cycle, and that can be a cycle of poverty. It could be a cycle of parent. It can be a cycle of whatever it is, right? So I've heard these things, especially in education. Like I've even heard, oh, well, if you want to know why the child acts like they do, wait till you meet the parent, right? So there's all these pieces, but it wasn't until... I started the uh, to try to understand trauma generally, right? Not even getting into the depths of it. And it, it was a couple of years within the work when I had started it. So it wasn't right off of the bat where I started learning about intergenerational trauma and even historical trauma. And you were one of my first guests on, on another podcast that I have. And you opened my eyes to a lot of it, to be quite honest, because um, when you stop, pause and think about it, right? And you think about historical context and, and you think about those the family cultures and in culture in general, how that is passed down. And it made me think I, I, I heard a story at one point, um, and many probably have heard of this about that that transmission of co- family culture, right? Of we there was a there was a a, um, a family and they were cooking a ham for a holiday, and the lady cut the end of the ham off. The husband said, Why are the spouse said, Why did you cut the end of the ham off? He said, I don't know, it's what my grandmother did. And Come to find out the reason that the grandmother had cut the end of the ham off was because her stove was too small and that's how the ham fit in the pan to fit in the smaller stove, right? I know that is a very basic example, but it it made me pause and go, okay, let me reflect on myself and let me start thinking about how that impacted me. And then I also thought the students that were in my classroom and then eventually the students at my school then the parents that I interacted with and the community that I'm involved with, it makes sense, right? It's why these systems that have been created are so hard to break, 
right? Because especially when we're talking in our country, our country was established on some, some ideals that go way past the development of our own country and have been embedded into my family lineage. And we'll get into that after the break that I didn't even know about, right? And so I think it, it didn't surprise me, but there were aspects of, of the intergenerational transmission that did. But I think when you start exploring your own journey in life, yeah. You start tracing back. That's where I think with me, the impact has hit because it's easier to look at somebody else and go, oh, well, I can see, you know, their experience. But when you start really examining yourself and going, yeah, let me look at my life and let me look at my parents and my grandparents and potentially my great grandparents. If we're for, if we have the opportunity to even be able to do that, then it really makes you pause and think, wow, how much, how much has impacted me? from previous generations. And it's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. And even when you were talking about, um, you know, cycles, cycles of poverty and things of this nature, this is why when I thought about what the mechanisms were, you know, the social learning piece is so important because um, if we think about children, if, if, if we use poverty for an example, right, um, the choices that parents make um, in the home because dealing with the oppression of poverty, the choices that parents make in the home or, you know, and it may even choice might not be a word. It might just be lack of choice. The options you know, matter when it comes to choice. So the, the, you know, the, the actual observable behavior in the home um, that is influenced by poverty or by racism um, and what that looks like in real life and how children are modeling their behavior. So, um, when we think about, you know, what it means to um, run a household, to pay bills, um, when it when you think about what it means to raise a child, to prepare them for racism, all of these different things are embedded within just processes in the home that the child is aware of. Even if the parent isn't, you know, talking about it explicitly, mm-hmm. they're going to get it through social learning. And they're also going to understand, oh, this is how I cope when, when things are not going well, even though the parent is not saying, hey, this is what you should do the child is going to see the parent and their externalized behaviors and model that behavior. And the implications there are vast. You know, that's essentially every aspect of life is is observed in the family setting. Mm -hmm. Um, How to interact with with loved ones, romantic relationships, um, how to run a household, um, definitely um, even sexual relationships. All of these things are modeled in in a home. uh, And when we think about how this is passed on through generations, the, you know, the epigenetics or the, 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 when we think about, you know, the impact of trauma and stress on our genetic material, that seems like shocking. But when we think about just the social learning, the, what children are um, exposed to and how that's passed on, um, it's, you know, the implications of this information are you know, astounding. So every aspect of life um, can essentially be passed on. And if those patterns, behaviors are rooted in oppression or trauma, or stress, then that child will pick up those behaviors and model those behaviors and um, display them in their own lives. 
And I also want to take some time to talk about how this is not exactly new science. Um, and, and even our understanding of it, you know, there's a lot here that's deeply rooted in, in racism. So I'll have that disclaimer. But we first um, had an understanding or we, our initial studies on um, intergenerational transmission came about due to the Holocaust. And, um, you know, developmental psychologists wanting to understand if the Holocaust was having any impact on families. And, you know, they very quickly found that children of survivors, and this is, you know, from studies done in the 60s, um, children of survivors um, displayed PTSD-like symptoms, even though they had not exactly, you know, they hadn't experienced the Holocaust themselves. And so um, it, the implications there were that the their, their parents were emotionally limited, that they were, they um, had high levels of anxiety and depression, and that impacted their uh, ability to parent. Um, and that, you know, those children had very clearly um, been impacted by the Holocaust despite not being there themselves. And then we have beyond human studies, we also have plenty of studies on those poor little lab rats. <laughs> oh, the little rats. Boy, they've taught us a lot. <laughs> yes. So, um, and, and those studies are, are, you know, there's been several, but very clearly highlight that uh, positive, comfortable, um, um, you know, environments um, lead to better development. But then that also that our, our DNA is responsible for sending messages to future generations. Um, and so there were studies that were done um, on lab rats um, that, that really um, explored how um, issues of environmental factors can be passed along, environmental threats can be passed along to future generations. And um, this means that not only are we, you know, experiencing stress and trauma that might impact our health outcomes, but we are also uh, have the capacity to send messages to through our experiences in our in our in our lives to future generations um, and around threats or around positive um, or comfortable environments. So the science is amazing. Well, I mean, and thank goodness we are able to do that as a species, right? Because if not, um, we probably fail to exist when back when we were barely walking upright and we were being attacked by saber-toothed tigers. It's really good to know that the next generations know, hey, these things are uh, these things are 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 potentially going to eliminate you, right? But it also we have to look at and I I I started thinking while you were talking like. But as we live these lives in these in our homes and in our families, there's also all of these things happening uh, around us that include us sometimes, like war and and um, uh, depression and uh, all of these different and and you know pandemics. All these things are happening and and basic civil rights not being met that are happening to generations of people as our generations go on and on that can change the trajectory right of how we operate and that's part of that epigenetics and and how our our 
our genomes respond, not our DNA, but the genomes respond to our environment. And it made me think, wow, the more I think about it and the more I look back, like it's the whole idea of, of adaptation and evolution, right? Of ourselves. We're constantly in a state of evolution and adjustment, and we're passing that down. Every experience that a generation has is making those adjustments of survival, right? To figure out how can we sustain as species, uh, to be honest. I mean, uh, and, and the more I think about it, I'm like, wow, this, this isn't new science. We know this. But as we start talking about trauma and the impact that especially social issues have, this is where the paradigm has to shift. This is why social issues, and we think about the socio-ecological model and how the greater picture impacts the individual person, it is where this work lies, right? I mean, it is where we are trying to use science to, to do better, not for ourselves always, but for the generations after us. Yeah, and this is a really important conversation because this is where we get into the importance of the initial ACEs study. What it's telling us is that these traumatic experiences, especially during vulnerable periods like childhood, are really impacting our, our well-being um, into adulthood. We know this, but this science is helping us to be very clear about, about it. And But then the implications are that as we have systems um, that oppress and um, and traumatize um, the whole, but then also you know smaller groups within the whole, that we are creating um, changes to the physical body, changes to parenting practices, changes to in culture in general. Even if we think about a collective trauma like slavery, that impacted every aspect of life for slaves. So they, it definitely impacted their parenting, but it also impacted how they cooked. It impacted their language. It impacted, you know, all aspects of life. And so um, as we have these oppressive systems and we have these toxic environments for human beings, uh, then we um, push for this survival-based um, culture that has a lot of implications. First, um, we know from the ACE study that it impacts health, it impacts mental health, it impacts IQ, um, it impacts, uh, you know, relationships. Um, but then we also know that when we are talking about things like racism and poverty, that it, it, it creates inequality. So we have groups that are not experiencing en masse these um, toxic environments. Um, that they're uh, able to thrive based on um, whiteness or based on um, economic stability uh, and all the things that come along with economic stability. I'm thinking, you know, as people are going through the flooding in California, some people live in valleys and lowlands, and those people are, are overwhelmingly people of color. And then other people live in areas that are not in flood zones. And those people are ultimately people with means and tend to be people that we would call white people. And so this is, this is um, you know, this example of environments that we're creating. Uh, and so I think it's important that we at first just understand the implications of that, that as we continue to have inequitable um, environments and especially those that are, um, creating uh, toxic stress for people and groups of people, 
that we are um, impacting their trajectory, that we are bringing about all of these things that we're talking about when it comes to intergenerational transmission. Uh, and so that's you know the first thing. But then once we know that, then we have to be clear that we would have to address those systemic issues before we can expect individual change. Mm-hmm. So I think that this, um, you know, our understanding of intergenerational transmission will really help us, obviously, as individuals uh, to think through our own health and well-being. But also, you know, this taps into a lot, our stereotypes around poverty and, and race, our, um, our beliefs and values. Um, and, and definitely, uh, it becomes an issue of morality. Um, will we continue to allow um, certain groups to be more impacted by these poor environments? Um, will we continue to allow future generations to be negatively impacted um, by trauma? And will we continue to allow for you know, these pockets of inequality and disparity in our society? And I mean, yeah, I, I, but I think that has to remove us from our individual perspective and look at a collective piece. Right. And I think that individualism that we experience in our country sometimes prevents people's lenses to be able to step back to see the greater picture. But we also and I made a mistake one time of saying, you know, our system is so broken and I was corrected. No, our system is operating exactly as how is designed. Right. Yeah. And until we can identify that it is a system operating as exactly how it's designed and this is the implications is that we have these oppressive practices. We have these um, communities that that are trying to thrive and maybe even thriving internally, right? But there's still a system of saying, no, this we we've got to keep we've got to keep these certain people at a, at bay, right? Because mm-hmm. the greater good of what is to be successful is our system. So a lot to talk about, and and yeah. I think we're gonna do more here in a minute, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. This is a very interesting topic. When we come back from the break, we will kind of dig into this systems that we're talking about. We'll look at the individual families and um, think through what, what it looks like when we're talking about intergener- intergenerational transmission. And then we will also look at, you know, the systemic level traumatic experiences like collective traumas and what that means for us as we um, adjust in, in, in this in post-COVID world um, and how we will ultimately be able to mitigate or prevent trauma um, based on the the the, um, the science that we now have, our understanding of trauma through being passed through generations. So we'll continue this conversation after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests 
will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. We are back. Thanks for joining us. Um, In the first half, we really kind of gave an overview of uh, intergenerational transmission of trauma and and kind of in the second half, we want to kind of talk about the different layers of this, of the impact of intergenerational trauma. I know for myself, um, when I first started to dig into this research, uh, one of the things that really came up for me over and over again was my own family. And, and you know, Matthew has talked about this before, about how we kind of really need to think about ourselves. And that's really one of the things that first came up. So as an African-American woman, um, I am a um, descendant of, of slaves. And so I really um, thought about how a, a collective trauma like slavery had impacted my family um, and again, kind of those four mechanisms. So um, survival parenting, that's that's big. And, and then how does one cope with a, a collective trauma like um, chattel slavery in America? And what type of, um, you know, things do we learn from our environment or do we learn from, you know, essentially what it means to be Black? This is what uh, Black children will be learning from the Black adults around them especially those that really um, line up with their gender identity. And, and then of course, all the things that come along in, in, in the space of genetics, uh, when it comes to race, this is loaded, right? And I wanna give a disclaimer that none of this is meant to offend, but 
there's a lot of research um, and, and data around the intelligence of African-Americans, right? When we talk about IQ and also um, African-Americans and their mental health outcomes, right? And so over and over again, when I'm in school, I'm seeing, you know, these, um, you know, research findings that are um, deficit focused when it comes to African-Americans, but not once am I seeing the connection between um, these poor outcomes with the collective trauma of, of slavery. It's, it's just not there. There's no context. There's no historical context with this data. And so, you know, even not too long ago, there was a, uh, I think a Nobel prize winning um, geneticist that said something to the effect of um, black people having lower IQ and it being attributed to their, to their race. And of course he, um, it was a source of a lot of controversy. He was stripped of his um, Nobel Prize. And, um, and, and I know that from my school experience over and over again, I would see data that came uh, from Black children that showed that they had lower IQ scores and lower standardized test scores and definitely lower academic performance. And so, you know, being very clear about the changes to um, your genetic material and what that what that means, it is correlated with um, poor mental health outcomes and cognitive cognitive impairment and um, lower IQ. But this is not something that's based on skin color. This is based on environment. Meaning, any human being that would go through um, those types of environments would have that type of of change to their physical bodies. Um, and so I thought that this is something that would need to be very clearly uh, put out into the world. Um, and, and I thought about, you know, my mother and the way that she raised me, she was definitely, um, you know, her parenting was definitely survival based. Um, she was always preparing me to be uh, discriminated against and telling me what I might experience in school or out in the world. Um, not just around race, but also around gender. So there's a lot there when it even comes to um, trauma in relationships and sexual trauma and uh, and how that is also passed along through generations as um, women tell girls, you know, stories around how to protect themselves as people of color teach their children about racism, like all these things, these are things that are being passed on through generations and that child's, how that child internalized that information, it depends on the child, but they do internalize that information. And then they will then teach their children from that experience, even when our environment may be different than the generations before us. My mother grew up in Texas, in rural Texas, you know, she had, you know, when she was in high school, she was the black homecoming queen and there was a white homecoming queen. And so this shapes how she lived her life. And that obviously shaped how she would raise me. I mean, so much. And I, I would say I, if you this book and I don't know if you've ever heard of it, it is Fugitive Pedagogy. Um, it is an amazing book. It was actually given to me uh, by Zaretta Hammond um, because we engage in some great conversation around these same things. It's a great book about how pedagogy over time, right, is fit to exactly what you said. It's, it is a separation of people for a reason and how that 
um, intelligence is perceived in school. So if you want to dig into a great book, dig into that. Um, and I also wanted to go and think about my own journey, right? Um, and you, Ingrid, on this podcast, when you told me you did, you sent me down this rabbit hole that I understand I'm actually blessed to be able to go down because um, I, I've we've had conversations in my family where I knew I was I knew my grandmother was Hungarian. I knew my grandfather had French roots. My my mom's side, we didn't really talk about it, to be quite honest. And I didn't know. So I started digging, right? Once I learned that we were going to do this. And I feel fortunate that I found what I found because when I realized that the majority of my family have come from Europe, right? Originally, there's all of this information that I now have found about my family that I understand that you may not even be able to ever access because of what your family has endured over historical times. Um, but I went through and I even found that my name, Portel, um, that isn't what it started out as. It actually started out as Portes, which is P-O-R-T-A-I-S. But when my ancestors, when my grandparent, when my grandfathers, I don't know, it was about seven or eight generations. Um, actually, I think it's four, but when they came to the US, they changed it to Portel, right? Had no idea. And I have just started scratching the surface. And now I'm I'm curious because my mom's side, I realized I had no idea, Ingrid, that the majority of my grand my grandparents on my mom's side, all of their family grew up in the South. And I'm thinking, wow, Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina. I don't know what's behind that genealogy of my family, but now I'm going, okay, I want to know more. Um, but I do think, you know, of, I am a son of a, uh, of a war veteran. Um, and this work and especially this intergenerational, and of course, we're I'm only talking one generation out, but I think about the, the role that that experience for my own father, he went to Vietnam, he was wounded, severely wounded, um, was one of his only platoon to return. I've actually only heard the story of his experience one time. And at that one time, he actually broke a podium when he was telling us because of the trauma in his body. Um, didn't know that at the time. My dad's only five foot two. He's a little guy. Um, but I was blown away by the strength that he had, not realizing that, wow, that's that was the trauma. Um, but I understand how that one that one experience in my in my life have, will now, that will be passed on. And sometimes I think cognizantly, why do I do what I do? How do I respond when I respond, right? And there's choice in it, I get it. But there's also things that I do that I don't even realize that it's happening. And I'm like, pause, think, connect, right? And I, I think if we can all do that and own our pieces of, like for myself, for myself historically, what has my, the generations that I've done and how can I undo those links? Not that necessarily the trauma that's been caused to my genealogy, but maybe the trauma that mine has caused. And I'm not talking about doing anything than just examining it and then wanting to do it different, change the systems that we know that we were a part of. And when I hear people say all the time, well, I don't know why I have to deal with the things that my great grandparents did, right? This is why it, it what our great grandparents experienced, whether it's on the receiving end or the giving end of something, right? Oppressive, it impacts us and it, it impacts the way we think, it impacts the way we interact, it impacts the way we parent. And so I think this 
personal exploration, I will say I have to thank you for even saying, hey, let's do a conversation on this. Um, because I think I'm going to go back to one of our very first conversations that you and I ever had. And you asked me, um, well, how were you taught whiteness? And I had no answer, Ingrid. I didn't. I had no idea how to answer that, right? But that has stuck with me to think about how was I taught, right? And I grew up in an evangelical home. And I realized that even that experience for me taught me that there was a male superiority, right? That males made the decision. They were the head of the household. They did this. They did that. And I think now, like, there's times I have to pause and go, wait a minute, where is this thinking coming from? Or why did I respond that way? And it all comes back to all of these experiences, not just of my parents, not just of my grandparents, but all the way down that lineage of, man, there's a lot happened in our world over over its lifetime, right? And I think, what is my child? What am I going to pass on to my child that I'll be proud that they pass on to theirs, that they proud that they pass on to theirs? And that's the work I think that we we need to look at is not just individuals, right? But collectively, what do we want our children's children's children to experience? And I think that comes down to one more thing that that you mentioned a little bit earlier, and I think it was more of a local context, but the environmental issues right? This is why these conversations are so important um, because the floods in California impacting the people, especially in the valley, are going Im- to impact generations because they're under-resourced, right? The, 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 the droughts prior to that are going to impact people, the tornadoes that are happening everywhere. All of this plays a major role um, on the next generations um, that, that we will be contributing or, or um, Manifesting the the resilience in our communities, so much to think about. See, my head's spinning now, Ingrid. So, what? I mean, what are your thoughts around all of that that I just dumped? Yeah, I think what you're saying is 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 clearly um, all tied together. So, if we our environments are carved out based on income and race across the board. So, if we think about our towns and the nice areas of town, the better schools. Um, the flood zones, the, you know, all of that is carved out based on race and, and, um, and, and income. And this is, again, a part of this larger system of, of, of values that we have. And as we hold on to these archaic values, then we continue to perpetrate this in our, in our physical world. And so this is how this, you know, you know, transfers through generations, even down to, like I said, you know, if, if my neighborhood has sidewalks or if my neighborhood is in a flood zone, um, but definitely when we get to um, the intergenerational and on the one-on-one level, um, then, you know, it is that parenting. And if we have those poor environments then we kind of force the parents in our society to adapt and be survival-based uh, and and raise children accordingly, and and it and it's not so much about if it if it's good parenting or or poor parenting, it is an issue of survival and adaptive parenting. Um, and then, like I said before, if the if of our society moves forward, for example, and we think about you know children, 
and and education are always a good goalpost for understanding, you know, inequity in our society, any society. If we have um, environments where children can thrive and um, um, be in their bodies and um, go to schools that are, you know, safe and allow for them to be creative and attentive, then we'll be able to see that in their in in their academics. We'll be able to see that as they grow and in, in what their neighborhoods look like. But if we allow for um, some areas to be underserved, um, and the families in those areas dealing with poverty and racism, then you'll have children that'll be in the classroom and they can't attend, and their bodies are activated, and they're hungry or they're stressed because their parents were arguing the night before the morning of school. Um, all of these different, or they're they're in you know the community is is violent. There's gunshots or um, they don't have safe passage. They they walk to the school bus and they're getting kind of, you know, heckled by whoever's on the street or there's um, gang activity and there's so much there. Um, then that child is not going to be able to sit and attend and, and, and be focused. Uh, and so we have to think about, you know, beyond the parents, you know, when it comes to intergenerational transmission and think about the systems that we've created where we force parents to be um, survival-based. Um, and we have to think about the historical context where we've created collectively traumatic experiences where we've compromised the health of large groups of people based on racism, based on environment, um, lead in paint and water, um, based on issues of um Basically, because we don't see them as viable people, we don't see their environments as worthy of being um, upheld. We don't believe that their built environment is important. Those kids don't have parks. They don't have, you know, there's a, you know, and then I don't even, you know, the whole environmental justice piece is a whole other conversation that we could get into. But we have to, we have to talk about systems in this space. Uh, and then, of course, we had to think about the beliefs and values that we have about people. Well, and I think I, I know in the future we're going to have a podcast on this um, because we've talked about it previously, but um, also the impact of rural communities, right? And how even in rural communities, there's this separation, too, of resources and supports. And um, I was watching I was watching the news this morning and the impacts of, of the initial drought, right, that was happening in all of these rural communities that were literally sinking. And the workers that were there couldn't, obviously couldn't work because they couldn't grow. They're talking to, there's just so many spiraling impacts that can we fix it all? I don't know the answer to that, right? And, and I don't, I don't think we as individuals or even collectively fix it all, but we have to start moving forward and fixing something because sustaining what quote unquote is normal, it has not worked. It's never worked. The misnomer that it's the greatest thing that's ever happened and it's it has worked before is the biggest piece of, uh, it's the biggest lie I feel like that so many people are being sold that it's working. It's so great. And uh, yesterday I was at a doctor's appointment. I sat next to an elderly lady and we talked for literally an hour. Unfortunately, I was waiting to get in the doctor for a whole hour, but her, we had similar conversations about 
is it going, can we change it, right? Can we do better? And I think that's where the conversation is going to continue is how do we, how do we adjust the intergenerational transmission of things that we are can control? Um, and how do we contribute to it? Um, because that is something we have to face too, is how are we contributing to these? So what do you see in that space, Ingrid, of what are the next steps for us collectively, right? I think individually, we all have to do our individual work. I think that's, a, that, that's just everybody. Yeah. But collectively, what do you see as, as, as the steps to move forward? Well, you know, Pace's Connection is always focused on education and awareness. So one thing is that we need to be um, spreading awareness of PCEs. And so these, the facilitation of PCEs on a systemic level um, has the potential to uh, help individual families to kind of break those cycles. Um, and so that would be one thing that we can prevent and mitigate trauma through the use of positive childhood experiences. Um, also, we, you know, we need to rely heavily on policy because systemic changes are more likely to be um, impacted by policy. Um, the only problem there is that our um, policymakers tend to be overwhelmingly one group of people. Uh, and that goes back to the shift in our beliefs and values. Um, we need to understand what we're capable of as a species. We've done a lot. Um, and so this is a, a systemic problem that we can address because we've shown that we as a species can do anything. Uh, and so I think that um, if we have the um, adequate awareness of the issue and understand the science, understand pace of science, and then know that it's possible for us to address it in each of those areas. What does it mean to uplift communities to break generational issues? Um, obviously, that's economic, addressing economic instability and also addressing racism. Uh, and addressing racism means that we, um, you know, we give reparations, we pay back um, and, and be, be more equitable. Uh, we're beginning to talk the talk and we, we hopefully that moves into us walking the walk, but reparations is needed um, to address, um, you know, the intergenerational historical trauma uh, on certain groups of people, obviously indigenous peoples, um, African-American descendants of slaves. And we, and then next we need to be very clear that um, we don't need to use blame and shame when it comes to parents. Um, that was one of my earliest lessons in this work. I was fixated on African-American parenting when I was trying to address the issue of um, children being in our uh, juvenile justice system. Uh, I started there. I was there for the majority of my studies, and it, it took a long time for me to get to the point where, like, this is an issue of conditions, that people's choices are, are based on their options, and their options are limited by many things. The options are limited by their past. So they've internalized racism and believe that there may not be as many options for them. And, but then their options are also um, you know, limited by the actual environment, the systemic issues there. And so both of those need to be addressed. So I think um, 
I don't know. If, I don't know if it's possible. I'm always a skeptic, but I think that we are at least talking about it in a real way, um, which is new. And that's we have not always had these type of conversations. And I think that we also need to really understand that as we have um, kind of, you know, inherited the traumatic experiences from our ancestors, according to the science, we also need to understand that that means we've also inherited their post-traumatic growth that we have um, been able to survive. Like when you were talking about your ancestors um, migrating here from Europe, um, you know, just the the thought of getting on a boat, you know, <laughs> and, you know, jumping out there to say that I'm, I'm leaving a situation, jumping into the unknown, that takes a lot. That That is not a small feat. Um, and so, and for my ancestors who got on a, a same boat, but forced and being able to survive because many people didn't survive the trip over. So there's a lot of resilience and post-traumatic growth there that, and we're, you know, as a species, we are, we're problem solvers. So we need to we need to capture that survival spirit and then um, use it in a way that actually helps us all to thrive as opposed to falling into tribalism and only some of us thrive. I mean, okay, so let's get, we're going to get started tomorrow, all of us. <laughs> no, this is the work we do. I mean, this is really it, right? Um, and I love that you, that, that you took us down that idea of optimism. And that idea of we also have to embrace like, wow, our ancestors were some tough folks, right? And yes, some of them may have done some things and we have to, we have to be able to navigate that. And some may have been through some things, we navigate that, but wow, we are a resilient species of people and problem solvers. So let's figure out the solutions to the problems. Um, and and that, uh, thank you for that, because that, that did, that did get, get me fired up of going, we're smart people. We can do this. We can do this. Um, next week, you know, we want to take some time to talk about kind of the trauma of the civil rights movement, which we really talk about the civil rights movement in that way, uh, especially as we honor um, um, MLK Day on January 16th. So uh, please join us next week as we have that uh, important conversation. And um, we definitely appreciate you joining us. Week. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.